First, let me say just from my family traveling up here and the time that we have spent here, how wonderful our time has been with you all. Um, we are truly appreciative of the graciousness and the kindness that has been shown to us by everyone. This is not, uh, for many of you uh, know this, but this is not our first time here at this church. And so we have known of that kindness and that um, graciousness many times before, um, but we are floored again by just the generosity of this congregation um, to our family in prayer, um, to our family just in, in opening up your uh, food cabinets to us and pouring forth uh, delicious food. Um, that is certainly a way to uh, earn my respect and trust. Um, but uh, we, we do honestly want to thank you all so much for the hospitality that you have shown to us. Uh, this morning, if you um, have a couple of fingers, you're probably going to need them for spots in, in Scripture. Um, if you don't have three fingers, borrow some from the people around you. Uh, we will be um, primarily in two particular places this morning, Ezekiel 34 and John 21. Uh, we will be making a, a short pit stop in John 10 as well. And I, the, the idea behind what we're, we're going to be doing today is kind of studying out something in Scripture that I think is very important, um, that I think has it can be and, and perhaps is lost a little bit today, and that is the idea of the metaphor for shepherd and what it means for us. And I have a, really two purposes this morning. One is to regain the metaphor of what it means for a pastor to be a shepherd. The word pastor means nothing more than shepherd, um, but oftentimes what we've done is, is because we use pastor as a role in the church, it is an office, we do not have that sense of of the metaphor of shepherding people that, that goes along with what that word has meant biblically and what it really means uh, for us. And so I want to sort of regain that metaphor. I want to reemphasize that metaphor for us this morning. And secondly, I want to show how a pastor then is, is through that metaphor, connected to Christ. Um, I think that that is an incredibly important thing. Too often, the role of pastor, the role of shepherd is connected to Christ because they come before you and they proclaim the word of Christ to you. They tell you the good news of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and the redemption of his people. They speak of the glory of Christ as he will come. And, and it, is a, it is a connection to Christ in proclamation, but it is not all that. The whole office, the whole metaphor works in connecting the shepherds very, very closely to Christ. And so I want to do that this morning, to look at those two things, to regain the metaphor and to regain the connection of that office back to Christ. To do that again, we will be uh, in Ezekiel 34, but we will start before that. The first thing we need to do is to establish then the need of the good shepherd. Why is it that we can't have many shepherds? Why do we need one who is good? First, in 1.1, we have the establishment of the shepherds. Even before David, we know that Moses was a shepherd. Uh, when he left Egypt and he went south to Midian to work under Jethro, he was a shepherd to the flocks. This is how he came upon the burning bush. But the idea of a shepherd, especially as a shepherd being the leader of the people of Israel, really starts with King David. We see this in a number of ways throughout David's life and almost every episode of David's life revolving around the idea that he is king is in the background that he is a shepherd first. So after Saul in, in 1 Samuel 15 has his fall, he does not do what the Lord commands and God takes away the kingdom from him and he will place it on a son of Jesse in Bethlehem. 
Samuel goes to Bethlehem, and what does he get word from the Lord? He says, you know, you're going you're to anoint one of these sons, but you don't look on the outside appearance. Look at what is in the heart. And so the sons pass, and they pass, and they pass, and seven sons go past. And he says, well, you know, there's got to be one here. The Lord told me to come. He says, there is. I have another son. He's shepherding in the field. We don't even hear David's name. David, the word David isn't even uttered by his father. He is not, he says, bring all of your sons before me, and the one who is left out is the little boy who is out in the field. Even in the very next chapter, when David has to front Goliath, and Saul looks at him and says, my goodness, man, you, you're just a boy. He puts his armor on him, and it falls comically to the ground. And so finally David takes it off, and he says, what are you going to do against this man? You are nothing but a boy. And he says, well, I don't know. I'll do what I did to the lions. I'll rip them apart with my hands because that's what shepherds do, right? Even in incredibly important passages like 1 Samuel 7, or excuse me, 2 Samuel 7. And 2 Samuel 7 is, is almost the epitome of everything in the Old Testament. As, as God is speaking to David, David is finally somewhat at peace with the peoples around him. He has established his king, and he says, you know, God has been traveling around for all these years in a tent, and I want to make him a house. And Nathan the prophet comes to him, and he says, man, if that's what you want to do, you should do it. And God then comes to Nathan at night, and he says, Nathan, no, 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 no. You tell David, I will make him a house. And one of the words that comes to him is he says, I took you from the pasture and from following sheep and made you ruler over my people. Now, there's a couple of ways that we read that. Sometimes it's read just as pure antithesis. You were this, and you were no longer that, and now you are this. But the better way to read that is to actually say something along the lines of, you were ruling over the sheep, and I made you ruler over my people. There is an elevation, but there is no, there's not a difference there. There's not a difference. Again, the backdrop of all of this is David's role as shepherd. When David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and he kills Uriah, and Nathan confronts him, how does Nathan confront him? He uses the imagery of a shepherd. He says there is a rich man who has lots of cattle and lambs, and there's another poor man who has one ewe lamb that he loves so much. And what happens? The rich man comes and he takes that ewe away, and David says, you know what? You kill him. That's what you do to that man. And Nathan says, you are that man. Why use that analogy? Why use that metaphor? It's because a shepherd is what David was. A shepherd is what he remained. His whole life, David was a shepherd. So much so that when he begins to consider in times of trouble who God is, what does he pen? The Lord is my shepherd. That is what the Lord was. Why did David do that? Why pick that metaphor? The Lord is so many things. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is comfort and affliction. He is a strong tower. There's tons of metaphors to pick from. David picks that in the heat of everything that he is going through because that is the air that he breathes. He is a shepherd. From that moment on, because David is, is the king of Israel, every king in Israel, even Jesus Christ himself, will be pushed back and looked back upon as David's son. Matthew begins, he is the son of Abraham, the son of David. It is important that he is David's son. He is, even Jesus Christ is referred back to David. And therefore, because David is the epitome of what it means to be a king, and the epitome of David is shepherding, from that point on, kings and leaders in Israel are seen as shepherds. 
And so the, the picture that comes through very clearly is that the kings and the leaders are shepherds. And that leads us to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel is a fascinating book. If you have not spent much time in it, I plead with you to do so. From beginning to end, it is a fascinating book. And Ezekiel is quite a character, might be the, the kindest way to put it. God asks him to do some very, very odd things. And Ezekiel does them. Ezekiel is a prophet who is in the exile by the Kibar Canal when he finally sees in Ezekiel 1 a vision of God's throne with fiery wheels reminiscent of the book of Revelation. By the time we get to Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel is about to make a change. And actually we get it here in Ezekiel 34. The beginning of the book of Ezekiel is judgment for people upon their sin, the rebellion that the nation of Israel has had before God. They have rejected him. They've moved away from him. And then God has pushed them away. They are finally exiled to the people of Babylon and to the Assyrians. But in Ezekiel 34, we begin to change. The, the t- corner is, is turned And we will get words of kindness and grace from God to his people. But before that, we have the rejection of the shepherds. If you would, read with me verses 1 through 6 of Ezekiel chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says to the shepherds, whoa, to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, you wear the wool and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, and brought back the strays or sought the lost. Instead, You have ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill. They were scattered over the whole face of the earth. There was no one searching or seeking for them. Those kings, those men in power who were meant to, under the office of king, watch out for their people to guide them, to protect them from the foreign nations, to make sure that they were safe and secure to feed them, were instead fattening themselves off of the people. Instead of being servants to the people and taking care of them, they thought that the people were there simply to take care of those who were in power. It is amazing that as as God is sending his people into exile, there are two things more than any other that stand at the forefront of God's complaints against his people. One, that they have turned to idolatry. They have worshipped gods that were not gods. They have worshipped Astropoles. They have worshipped Baal. They have worshipped Molech. But second on that list that repeatedly comes up time and time again is the violence of the leaders against the poor the oppression of people who need to be helped and healed are simply used as pawns in a game. He looks at them and he says, shouldn't you feed the flock? And instead what they're doing is feeding themselves off of the flock. This is not an unusual sin, unfortunately. Not even in terms of of leaders, but even in our lives. This sin is, is exactly the same kind of sin that we see in Genesis. 
Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are just so foundational for everything that we know of when it comes to sin and it comes to trials in this world. There's a number of ways that you can look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and look at what Adam and Eve have done as, as you make sense of, of sin in your life and sin in the world. You can simply see it as in terms of rebellion. One of the most profound ways to see it is this inversion of a rightly created godly order. God made everything in the beginning. He made it with the power of his word. He speaks and things pop into existence. It is a power unlike anything that we can imagine. And then on the sixth day, the final day of creation, he says, I will make man in my image. I will endow him with something that nothing else in creation has. I will make him ruler over all of the creation. I will tell him to be fruitful and multiply and fill. And then he pulls a rib out of Adam and he makes Eve a helper suitable for him. And he places them in the garden and he says, you can eat anything you want to, any tree that you want to, except for the one in the middle of the garden. That is the knowledge of good and evil and you cannot eat it, for in the day that you eat it, you will die. And immediately we are introduced not to a high and mighty angel. We are not introduced to a being of utmost power and respect. We are introduced to a serpent, to a creature. God Adam, Eve, creation. And a creature comes to Eve and he says, yeah, so that tree about that, you really believe God? And she listens to him. Then she listens to herself and then she denies God. And in all of that, the sin of the world is brought forward as all of creation is flipped upside down. Why is it that when we get idolatry throughout scriptures, why is it that they are worshiping created beings, right? They worship four-footed animals. They worship cows and goats. They worship rivers. They worship snakes. Why are we warned against that kind of idolatry in, in our lives? We are, we're much more sophisticated than all of that. We're, we worship those abstract things like money, success, and power. At least they worship things that they could get, right? <laughs> We're much more sophisticated, but it's the exact same thing. We worship the things of the world because God has, in, in allowing sin, in the sin that has happened, world is turned over, that order, that good created order is turned over. And what are the leaders doing here? They have turned it over. They are to be shepherds over their people. They are to watch over them, to keep them from being oppressed, to help them, to bandage those who are injured, to heal those who are sick, to feed those who are hungry. But instead, they are simply gorging themselves on the people of God. And God says, I've had enough. Notice verse 5. I think that verse 5 is just an utterly amazing verse. He's talking about his people. He says, they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. Where are the people of God scattered? What does that mean that they were scattered? They're in exile. Ezekiel has just spent 33 chapters listing the reason why the people are in exile. And he said, it is sin, it is sin, it is sin, it is sin, it's idolatry. And in one verse, Ezekiel says, you know why they were engaged in idolatry? Because the shepherds weren't doing their job. It was the failure of the shepherds. Go back and look through the kings. What happens when we get a king like Josiah? Josiah finds the scroll in the temple. He, he goes through a course of, of not only repenting in and of himself, but calling upon the people to repent, and they follow him. 
But you can open up the 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. Drop your finger almost anywhere on the text, and it will land on a poor king who doesn't lead his people in the direction they should go. And what happens? The people follow in that direction. They are sheep. Sheep wander. That is the picture of sin. They wander. They need a shepherd to pull them in. But instead, these shepherds push them away all the further. And God says, why have my people gone astray? Why did they fall into rebellion? Why did they fall into idolatry? Because they didn't have shepherds that were above them doing their jobs. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So they were sent out to the nations and the nations preyed upon them. So God has a solution. Not only will the shepherds be rejected, but God himself will come and shepherd his people. Look at verse 11. As we read down through verse 16, listen, I will try to emphasize this, but listen to how many times God says, I and my and me. It is all about God doing this work. In verse 11, for this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he's among the scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a cloudy and dark day. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them into their own land. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in the inhabited places of the land, I will tend them with good pasture, and their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. There they will lie down in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will seek the lost. Bring back the strays. Bandage the injured. Strengthen the weak. But... I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will shepherd them with justice. God says, I have a solution for the problem of all of you wicked shepherds. I'm going to simply get rid of you. That middleman that exists between God and the people, he says, I'm simply going to get rid of him. All those poor leaders that you've got, we will ignore them, we will get rid of them, and I will come and I will shepherd my people. I will be the one who does this. I will gather them from the far countries. I will be the leader over them. And yet, at the end of this, well, not at the end, but in the middle of this chapter, Verse 23, we get a bit of a paradox. God says time and time again, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And then in verse 23, he says this, I will appoint over them a single shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and be their shepherd. I, Yahweh, will be their God. My servant David will be prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken. God was always shepherd over his people. 
If, if shepherds are, are to be seen as kings, if, if this is a metaphor for being a king, time and time again, the Psalms uphold, David and, and Solomon uphold the fact that God is king over Israel. The king is only like a secondary figure in Israel. He is acting as God on the earth. He is acting in, instead of God on the earth, but nevertheless, God is still king over his people. When God says, I will take out the middleman, the problem with doing that is God has promised to David forever a lasting throne and dominion. And so we have in 1.3 the paradox of the shepherd. Men are sinful and they cannot be trusted with shepherding the people of God. Yet God has promised David that there will always, always be a man on his throne. And at the same time, God has promised that he himself will be that good shepherd. The solution in John 10 Jesus is that good shepherd. It is through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, both as son of David and as son of God, as divinity and humanity meet in one, he clothes himself with human flesh and takes on the form of a servant, that God can do both of these. He can both be the one shepherd of his people, and yet a human man stands on the throne of David. It is Jesus Christ that undoes all of this. Think of the wonder. It's, it's very easy to read Ezekiel 34 simply as a Christian and say, yeah, 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 I got that. I know it's Jesus. That's pretty easy. It's like the most Sunday school answer ever. Who is the good shepherd? It's Jesus. Some would, if they're falling asleep, will wake up and say, Holy Spirit, but nevertheless, Jesus is always a really good answer. So, But imagine this as, as somebody who we, and by the way, you should never not read the Old Testament as a Christian. It's, it, you're not Jewish. You're not a first century BC person. You know how the story ends. It's okay to read it that way, and you should read it that way. But imagine for a minute what, what confusion that must have been amongst Israel. How will God remove the shepherds from Israel, be king over them, and why would not the problem persist if he's just going to put another David in line? The problem with David was his sons. If he's just going to put another David in line, how in the world can he honestly shepherd his people and not have this whole thing repeat? Because Jesus is not like all other men. Jesus says this in John 10. I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. And then, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired man, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. I mean, if you don't hear Ezekiel 34 in that, you're totally missing it. They are thieves and robbers. They don't come of their own desire to love the sheep. Instead, what are they doing? They're just coming to take and get as much away from the sheep as they can. And what happens? Exactly what Ezekiel 34 says. The sheep are scattered and they're prey for the nations. The wolves come and they kill them and destroy them. And Jesus says, I am not one of them. 
I lay down my life for the sheep. See, that inverted order, shepherds are to care for their sheep, and those, those sinful, sinful kings did not do that, and Jesus says, but I do. I lay down my life for the sheep. I will give everything I have. As David says, what happens when a lion attacks your sheep? You go after the lion. Jesus says, I will gladly lay down my life. My people are in danger. And I will gladly lay down my life to keep them from danger. I am the good shepherd. In verse 14, I know my own sheep and they know me. They do not listen to the voice of these foreign kings, kings who do not know the things of God. They won't listen to him, but they will listen to me. Why? Why did the people scatter? Because they're sheep and sheep wander. And what does Jesus say? I will call my sheep and they will no longer scatter, but they will come to me because they know my voice. We are kept by Christ because he is the good shepherd. When he calls to us, we come to him. He calls us back into the fold. He keeps us from wandering because he is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for us. We know him and we trust him. Back even in verse 3, the doorkeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. There is peace, there is joy, there is good pasture land, there is abundance for all in Jesus Christ because he is the good shepherd. In all of this though, John has the most extended session of speech after the Passover dinner from chapters 13 all the way to his arrest in chapter 18. All of those chapters are taken up with Jesus trying to comfort his people. And he is trying to comfort his people primarily because he knows that he is going away. He continually tells them, I am going away to prepare a place for you. I am going away, but I will not leave you as orphans. I am going away. He's going away primarily to two places. He is going away to the cross to prepare a place for them. And he is going away to the Father. And he says, I will not leave you alone. I will send you. I will send you the Spirit. But there's a problem. If you go back to John chapter 21, Jesus does something, given what we have studied, that's a little bit strange. Being that he is the good shepherd, that he was the solution to the problem, we have him then reestablishing human shepherds, reestablishing human pastors over his people. The question is how are we supposed to understand what Jesus is doing here? What is the relationship between these shepherds and Jesus as the, the good shepherd? There's, I think, a number of ways that people handle things like this. There is that sort of independent American spirit that says, well, you know what, I really don't need shepherds over me. Jesus very clearly said, hey, I, I gave you the spirit. I've got the word of God. I will, I will manage this on my own. I do not need somebody standing over me. After all, priesthood of believers and a number of other things that they're going to misunderstand. And because of that, they're simply going to say, I don't need the church because I certainly don't need the shepherds because shepherds lead people astray. And amen to that. Shepherds will lead people astray. There's no doubt about that. But in response, I would say this. One of the good, good things about having a good shepherd 
is that that good shepherd will always remain the good shepherd. Jesus remains the good shepherd. When he comes to Peter in these verses, we'll move back then to verse 15. Notice the commands that Jesus gives in verse 15 of chapter 21. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. You see, if you honestly want to believe that Jesus is your shepherd, you had better come to grips really quick with the fact that that shepherd has called other people to be shepherds over you. He commands Peter, you feed my sheep. He commands Peter, you tend my flocks. Jesus doesn't just sort of stop being the good shepherd because he is not present with you. It doesn't mean that Jesus has gone and his presence is no longer felt here. It does mean that Jesus gets to, as the good shepherd, decide what is best for the sheep and how the sheep are to be tended for and how the sheep are to be feeded and how the sheep are to be cared for. And in that, he has appointed men to be pastors and and shepherds over his people. That means that he gets to remain the good shepherd. Given what we've read about shepherds, we think that that service and simply supporting the sheep is all that is required of a shepherd, but shepherds come with rods and staffs for a reason. When, when David writes, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Listen, that comfort comes at a cost because those shepherds will beat the sheep at times to get them to do what they ought to do. Jesus has every right to command what he will of his sheep. And part of his remaining the good shepherd is that he has placed pastors and shepherds over his people. But that again, that again, even though he's done that, how do we know, how do we know that men will do what they are supposed to do as pastors and shepherds? That brings us to 3.2. Jesus redeems his shepherds. If you will, we need to go back to Peter's denial of the Lord. Back at the end of John 13, Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And Peter very quickly says, no, 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 I'm going to follow you wherever. You want me to lay down my life? I'll lay down my life. You want me to lay down my life? Right now, right now. Give me a soldier's ear to cut off. I'll do it. You know, give it to me. And Jesus says, no, 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 Peter, honestly, man, three times you'll deny me. Three times. In chapter 18, by the way, when you hear something in John that resonates with the other synoptics, you really ought to pay attention to that. John is so vastly different than all the others. When you get repetition between John and the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it means that that is an incredibly important incident. The feeding of the 6,000, or 5,000, excuse me, is an incredibly important uh, sign and miracle in John 6. The fact that Peter 
is again shown to have denied the Lord on the night of Jesus' crucifixion is an incredibly important ordeal. We get his actual denial of Jesus up in John 18. We'll read verses 15 to the end of the passage. Well, we will skip a middle section, excuse me, but we will start in John 18, 15. Meanwhile, after Jesus has been arrested and, and taken away to the high priest, Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So far, so good. So we, we would think that the other disciple here is John. John somehow has an in with the high priest. And so as a good disciple, he's very concerned with what's going to go on. And so he gets into the courtyard. He knows how to get in. And Peter comes all the way, and Peter then has to stand back. And John senses that. So he turns around, and he talks to the girl who is the girl. This is important. The girl, the slave girl who is marching the gate. She's watching the gate, and he says, let this one in. So she lets him in. Verse 17, she's letting him in. Then the slave girl, who was the doorkeeper, said to Peter, You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Now the slaves in the temple police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing with them, warming himself. Jump down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. The exact same scene. They said to him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the high priest's slaves, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Remember? Isn't that one? John is so subtle. Remember the boldness of Peter when he cut off that dude's ear? Remember all that boldness? It's gone like a puff of smoke. He says, Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter denied it again. Immediately a rooster crowed. It is the same inversion. Peter owes his allegiance to Christ. Peter has confessed his allegiance to Christ. And what happens? He drops it at a hat because a slave girl asks him. He would rather be in the good graces of a slave girl than he would in the good graces of the Lord God Almighty. This makes John 21 all that more important. John, again, is so subtle with this. And the subtleness is important because it speaks to the care, the concern, and the tenderness that Jesus has toward Peter. If you look, it is not just any old fire that has been going. Just like the fire before, the only time this word ever appears in the New Testament, that it was a charcoal fire by which Peter denied, it is now a charcoal fire that Jesus himself has built to roast fish on. Now, first question is different than the rest. He says, do you love me more than these? And we have no idea what the these are. Does this mean more than the fish that I've filled your belly with, Peter? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than, than the disciples that are around? Do you, do you have more love for me than they do? Or, or even do you love me more than you love them? 
What is it? Which one does it? Is he asking about Peter's love for the things of the world? Is he asking about Peter's love in comparison to the disciples? It's, it's very vague, and John's, John's being intentional with that. He means for it to be vague. We don't know who the these are because when Peter answers, he's answering all of it. He doesn't. He doesn't brag about his love for Jesus anymore. He doesn't say, you know, Father, or you know, Jesus, how much I love you. I love you more than, than anything. He simply, simply says, you know I love you. You know I love you. Jesus asks him a second time. We get the same response for Peter. Jesus asks him a third time, and Peter is grieved. Peter's not grieved because Jesus isn't accepting his answer. It's a very easy way to read that. Jesus says, do you love me? He says, yes, of course I, I love you. So, so, okay, well, he must not have bought it. Maybe I should say it with a little more gusto. Do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. But when it happens the third time, he knows that it's not because Jesus has not heard him. He knows that it's not because Jesus is just pestering him. He realizes quite clearly it's a third time because he denied him three times. Now, realize quite clearly what Jesus is doing. He could have shown up and said, Peter, man, seriously, I told you. I even warned you in advance about your denial, and you still went through it anyways. I was in my time of greatest need. You were my closest disciple. You were the one who was nearest to me at all times in my ministry. You knew me better than any man in the world. You, of all people, shouldn't have turned your back on me. You want forgiveness? Kneel in front of me. Ask me and beg me for forgiveness. Jesus could have looked much more like a mafia boss than the Lord of all. But instead, what does he do? Subtly, tenderly, he heals the sick. He bandages Peter. He takes care of him. He comforts him. Because he's the good shepherd because he's not just a ruler over all things, because he's not just one whose allegiance is due. He is that, but he's more than that. He loves his sheep. How is Peter supposed to take care of Jesus's sheep? How is he supposed to love them and care for them? How is he going to know what to do? Peter is a fisherman, this is a lost metaphor on him. He was on much more firm ground when Jesus says things like, follow me, we'll make you a fisher of men. Sweet, I know how to do that. I know what that means. Peter isn't a shepherd. He was out in a boat fishing and he wasn't doing a very good job until Jesus made 157 fish appear. Then he was fine, but he's not a shepherd. He, how is Peter supposed to know what it means to be a shepherd? He knows because Jesus did it for him. He knows how to be tender and kind with sheep because Jesus was tender and kind with him. He knows what it means to forgive and to lead at the same time, to not be heavy-handed, to love and care for people in their sin and in their distress, even when they've sinned against him. How does he know this? Because Jesus has modeled it for him. Jesus redeems his shepherds. And finally, Jesus is the focus of his shepherds. 
Again, it would be so much easier to understand this passage if Jesus said, hey, Peter, do you love my sheep? Great, then go tend them. Do you love my sheep? Thank you, go feed them. Instead, what Jesus does is say, do you love me? Do you love me? Oftentimes, we feel as though in order for people to really be loved, we need to know that they are the eye of our affection. What happens for pastors quite often is they want to be known as the pastor who cares and loves for their people. And so they make every effort to show that you are the center of their lives. And what happens is pastors who become like that are pastors who are unwilling to use the rod when they need to. And I don't mean the rod in a hurtful way. Remember the entire way this thing is framed. Use a rod in a gentle way. They do not want to tell their sheep, that water is muddy, don't drink it. That food is bad for you, it will kill you. You take that in, it will destroy you piece by piece. They don't want to upset the sheep because they love the sheep so much. So they're unwilling to be good in their shepherding. So Jesus reframes it. He says, not do you love the sheep, but do you love me? It is his sheep. Peter is commissioned by him. Peter's love is to be focused on him. He is the focus of the pastoral ministry, not not just in retaining the word on Sunday mornings and proclaiming it to people. That is not the job of a pastor. That is the job of a robot. We can have computer programs read the word of God to you for 50 minutes when you come in here. It's easy, I think. I don't know. I'm pretty sure we could do that. <laughs> and that's not what we're here for. That's not what you're here for. It is the love of Jesus that drives pastors to do what is good by the sheep. It is his example and his model that keeps them contained in his forgiveness and his love. Does that mean that they can't go, go astray? Does that mean that they won't fall into sin? Well, it absolutely does not. But it does mean that if Jesus has redeemed them, that they know of his love, that they will watch, they will watch his sheep with care and concern with tenderness. They will lay down their own lives. Notice what he says immediately after this to Peter. I assure you, in verse 18, when you were young, you would tie your belt and walk whichever way you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. And someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. It's not the love of the sheep that's leading him to do that. I guarantee you that. The reason why he is willing to lay down his life is not because he loves the sheep. He's willing to lay down his life to be an example of Christian faithfulness, even to the point of death, because he loves Jesus. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God, but he has not left us alone. Not only has he given the church the Spirit of God, to help remind them of the things of God, to help bring forth the Word of God and to interpret it for them, to make it imprinted upon their hearts, to help us in prayer and to help us in all of those things. But he has likewise given shepherds for the good of his people, that they might shepherd as he shepherd. They are both, they are both at their best. At their worst, they are no better than fire to be burned up, but at their best, they are excellent, excellent examples of both Jesus Christ as shepherd, caring over the flock of God, tenderly leading them, and examples of being led and tenderly cared for by Jesus himself. 
Jesus has acted on them and he acts through them and they are examples to the church to help lead the church. On personal level, there will be times when you go through darkness and, and destruction. There will be times when it comes upon you as evil from the outside. It will be times when it boils up in you as evil from the inside. You will be led through valleys of darkness and sin. You need a pastor. There will be times when the church will enter into those valleys of darkness. Whether from the inside or whether from the outside, you need pastors to lead you through those things. The Lord is your pastor and you shall not want, but he has in pastoring you and in shepherding you provided you with good and godly men. That is the role of a pastor. The metaphor works because it is a perfect picture of love and care for the people of God. And it is a perfect example of the people of God following not a shepherd, remember there is a good shepherd, but following the voice of the one true and good shepherd. That is the picture that we are to follow. That is the example that we are to have. So that when we do walk through valleys, when we do go through times of great personal stress and even church-wide distress, that we will know that God will lead us to very, very pleasant places, even at the cost of our lives, because we have a good shepherd, and he knows what he is doing with us. Let us pray. Father God, we confess that as shepherds we fail. We will always fail. We will continue to fail. But we have what a wonderful example in Jesus Christ. He has commissioned Peter, and Peter, even in 1 Peter, commissions others to go out and to shepherd the flock of God, even as Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd among them. Father, we are grateful that you have given each and every one of us shepherds to watch over us, to convict us of our sin, to know what it means for, both for them to taste forgiveness and to give it out. Father God, it is good that you have done this. We ask that we will come to better terms with what it means to be a pastor, that those of us who are pastors will learn to walk better and closer to you, that you will forgive us for our sins and reestablish our ministries. We pray for the people of God that they will hear pastors who truly speak your voice, that they will listen to your voice working through them, and that in doing so they will cling tightly to you for your glory, for you are the one and only good shepherd. In this we pray, amen.